Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, a senior lecturer at the American University School of International Service. Thank you all for listening. Today, I'll be talking to Alex Hinton about his book, Anthropological Witness, Lessons from the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, published by Cornell University Press in October of this year. Alex, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me back. Thanks you for joining me. Can you uh, start us off by telling our listeners a bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm an uh, anthropologist. Uh, I teach at Rutgers University in Newark, um, where I direct the Center for the Study of Genocide and Human Rights uh, and have the UNESCO Chair in Genocide Prevention. Um, my ethnographic fieldwork, as you might have guessed from, uh, your listeners may have guessed from the title of the book, uh, centers largely uh, in Cambodia, uh, though I do comparative work, and I also have written and many other topics, including a book uh, last year, the one we talked about, It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide uh, in the U.S., which uh, appears, uh, again, to maybe be taking a new iteration in the coming uh, next two years, but we'll see. Um, anyways, I'm delighted uh, to be with you and looking forward to the conversation. Thanks, Alex. And, uh, you know, your book here, um, Anthropological Witness, I think, continues a, a sort of change in the style of your writing um, from maybe your previous more academic work. I'm not that this isn't academic, but um, could you could you start our uh, start us off by reading an excerpt from Anthropological Witness to give our audience an idea of the, the style with which you approached your, your book here? Uh, sure, that'd be great. Maybe I'll just read the uh, beginning of the book. Um, okay, so this is the start of the book and the introduction titled Law Anthropology and the expert witness. Tuesday, September 22nd, 2015, Newark, New Jersey, USA. As I sit at my desk, finishing a book on an international criminal tribunal being held in Cambodia, I receive a surprise email from that very court. The message confronts me with a dilemma. It also raises questions about my role as an anthropologist and my responsibility to bring scholarly insights into the public sphere. Quote, I would like to inform you that your name has been put before the trial chamber of the ECCC on a confidential and provisional expert witness list, reads the message from an official at the Extraordinary Chambers in the Courts of Cambodia, or ECCC. This UN-backed international hybrid tribunal was established to try former leaders of the Khmer Rouge for genocide and atrocity crimes that took place in Cambodia while they held power from 1975 to 1979. Quote, the trial chamber has requested that I make contact with you, the message continues, to determine your willingness and availability to travel to Phnom Penh, Cambodia, to testify before them as an expert witness in the trial of Nguyen Gia and Q Sampan. Q Sampan held the largely ceremonial title of head of state. Nguyen Gia is more notorious. Some call him a monster. He claims to be the champion of Cambodia's poor. He's known for his devotion to cause and willingness to do whatever was necessary to ensure the success of the revolution he and his Khmer Rouge comrades undertook when they seized power in Cambodia on April 17, 1975, following seven years of civil war, 
Although he served as brother number two, quote unquote, Nguyen emphasizes that he and brother number one, Pol Pot, worked hand in hand, more or less as equals, while they attempted to transform Cambodian society into a communist utopia. By the time they were toppled on January 6, 1979, the DK regime had implemented policies resulting in the deaths of around a quarter of Cambodia's 8 million inhabitants. Pol Pot died in 1998. Nguyen Gia is the most senior leader left alive to strand, stand trial for the group's crimes. Due to geopolitics, it has taken over 30 years for Nguyen Gia to face justice. Many scholars would leap at the chance to be part of his trial at the ECCC, one of the most significant international criminal tribunals since the the Nuremberg Tribunal's prosecution of Nazi leaders. My initial response is ambivalence and apprehension. I have reservations and questions. And then the next session begins the cons of expert uh, witness. And it goes and talks about the pros of expert witness as well and takes it from there. Um, And, you know, just as a little bit more framing, I should note that the book uh, moving forward talks about, you know, I decided to testify, talks about the trial testimony, and it sort of culminates with an encounter uh, with Nguyen Gia, who has been boycotting the court. Um, and he breaks his silence to come up and try to critique my testimony, which I guess he found uh, incriminating uh, in some different ways and damaging to the defense. Um, and at that time, he also took the chance to, quote unquote, pose a couple of questions to me. So the book ends up there. Uh, and along the way, it considers, uh, you know, what uh, what is law? What is anthropology? What does it mean to be an expert witness? What is truth? What is denial? It um, takes up questions of, uh, you know, epistemology, uh, and by saying that, I don't. It's not a. The book doesn't deal with a heavy-duty philosophical uh, dialogue about that, but takes the more colloquial definition of epistemology as our ways of knowing, and our ways of truth-making, uh, and these were front and center uh, at the tribunal, both in the way that law produces truth uh, and. You know, I myself as an anthropologist and a genocide scholar uh, use different methods, practices, concepts, so on and so forth uh, to uh, render uh, claims about truth. Uh, So the book is both a a narrative. uh, It also has this sort of uh, almost introductory consideration of of what anthropology is and what genocide studies is. And it also has this sort of deeper level asking what is the nature of uh, anthropology law and, and all disciplines, the ways that we have these epistemologies that lead to truth claims. Thanks, Alex. And, you know, maybe a question we could start with here is this idea of the anthropological witness. And, and based on what you read and, and what you just shared with the listeners, um, you know, what were the pros and cons of being an anthropolo- anthropological witness uh, for testifying, um, you know, that you mapped out in your book? Yeah. So, uh, you know, in terms of the cons, uh, maybe that's a good place to start. Um, you know, one thing, uh, and this isn't the most important thing, but it was a thing that, uh, you know, I had to consider Um was that expert witnesses uh, basically become a target. They have a bullseye on their back uh, for 
whichever side in the court doesn't, you know, they find the, uh, the testimony to be incriminating. Uh, in this case, it was New and Gia's defense team. Um, and it's kind of interesting, you know, maybe it's good or bad. You know, we think about academics going through uh, the dissertation process and having sort of moments at which their methodology and projects are critiqued by peers. You know, in this situation, basically uh, everything a scholar has written uh, is on the table for critique and challenge. Um, so there's, you know, what one dimension uh, is this notion of, uh, you know, you're sort of opening yourself up for critique. I was, I was willing to take that chance, uh, and that that was fine. Um, you know, a, another consideration, and this was, uh, you know, a deeper consideration, uh, is, uh, you know, the fact that. All these tribunals are hyper-politicized, some more than others. Um, and this uh, tribunal, the Nuangia defense team had a argument they called the crocodile. And that crocodile defense, as they called it, uh, said that the tribunal was only looking at the you know trunk of the crocodile and not its head or tail. And what they meant through this metaphor was that they don't examine the, what happened before and what led to uh, democratic Campuchia or the period of Khmer Rouge rule to take place. And it didn't look at what happened afterwards. And this is correct. Um, you know, all tribunals, as I said, are political. They have jurisdiction or the ability to, uh, you know, determine crimes, criminality conducted during a certain period of time. And because the U.S. and China in particular didn't want uh, to be implicated for uh, the different ways in which their hands are very dirty in the conflict, um, which isn't to say either was responsible for the genocide, that's a very different thing, but had responsibility uh, in crimes against humanity uh, and other things that took place uh, indirectly and directly for things like the US bombing of Cambodia. Um, you know, they cut the, the jurisdiction to the period of Khmer Rouge rule only. So those dates I mentioned before, uh, in April to January, 1975, 1979. Uh, so, you know, that's right. So there's one dimension of politics. Um, another dimension of the politics linked to this uh, was the uh, defense's critique. Uh, and it wasn't just New and GL, the defense lawyer said this, and many academic scholars uh, and many people in civil society, everyone seemed to say this. If you open the newspaper and look up uh, ECCC, and in fact, I've said it before in, in publications, uh, that there, you know, there's a lot of political influence in this tribunal. The Cambodian government had a very heavy hand, even as the goals, overall goals of the tribunal directly meshed with those of the of the leadership of the Cambodian government, um, which was fine. They differed in terms of the scope of how many people would be tried. So again, in terms of this jurisdiction uh, thing I was talking about, personal jurisdiction, uh, the tribunal had this ambiguous language that they would try uh, senior leaders and those most responsible. And ultimately, the Cambodian government uh, wanted a small number of people tried, and they ended up getting their way. Uh, and the international community, UN uh, actors wanted, you know, some people said 20 to 30 trials. Um, and the Cambodian government uh, you know, basically ultimately was able by having this hybrid tribunal makeup with Cambodians, uh, you know, in a majority in all the major offices, um, 
you know, of the different chambers and having a co-prosecutor, national and international, uh, you know, office of investigating uh, uh, judges. Uh, anyways, in all these different offices, you had uh, combined personnel. Uh, and that ultimately uh, gave the Cambodian government control. And the one other dimension to it uh, is that uh, quite early, uh, there, you know, there were rumors and then there was evidence that there was a kickback scheme. Um, and so we had, you know, corruption in the sense that, uh, tainted the reputation of the court, political interference that was, uh, there from the start, uh, but mainly played into this issue, uh, of how many people to put on trial. Um, but it influenced, you know, the way law proceeded in this case, um, and, you know, the, the last thing I'll say is the, this was part of the crocodile defense, um, is that the Cambodian government and the internet and many members of the West, quote unquote, had a specific interest in rendering truth, uh, that accorded with this narrative that demonized the Khmer Rouge. So that's an obvious, uh, you know, line from the defense to take. Uh, but that meant that, you know, scholars like me, uh, you know, and others, uh, were, you know, in their argument, invested in promoting uh, a sort of singular narrative. The flip side of this, and this I haven't gotten into the other, you know, the, the other big con I alluded to it in my initial remarks. Um, but one of the pros was the fact that overall, though, this crocodile defense sought to blame Vietnam uh, for everything that happened. Uh, more or less, uh, in the end, and it was very reductionist uh, teleological uh, argument that uh, you know falls apart quite quickly when you interrogate it. Uh, so you know, as we so as a form of denial was going on uh, in this court, as uh, Nguyen defense, uh, Nguyen and his defense team were deny, ultimately denying his culpability and involvement in genocide, um, and doing that through the case they were presenting, which. Mixed truth and lies is all uh, sort of forms of denial do. Um, and just to sort of wrap around back to the the cons, the other, you know, major sort of con that worried me is uh, the fact that we had these two different epistemologies that were operative in the court. So there's a historian, Henry Rousseau, uh, who was called to testify uh, and a uh, Holocaust-related court upon trial uh, and uh, in the 1990s, and he famously refused to testify. Uh, he said that, uh, you know, historians have a particular practice, a particular epistemology. I don't know if you use the word epistemology. That's what I'm using. Um, but effectively, he was talking about epistemological assumptions uh, that are geared to explain things in a particular sort of way. And those sorts of ways uh, of knowledge production, and again, that's my term, not his, uh, weren't well suited for a courtroom. Uh, he talked about uh, people who were giving testimony uh, being effectively, uh, you know, quote unquote, held hostage uh, to legal procedure. Uh, he talked about how law sought a juridical rendering of the past as opposed to that which he as a historian would normally produce. Uh, so he said, no, you know, I'm not, I don't think it's appropriate for me to uh, testify. I had actually observed this, uh, this same sort of thing. He was absolutely correct in the broad point he was making, uh, that someone who enters into the courtroom space is effectively sort of like in a field 
negotiating what's going on uh, and that within that field, and I'm invoking the Bourdieu metaphor, um, there are all sorts of rules, constraints, uh, but there's also latitude. Uh, Rousseau did not want to, didn't really talk about that latitude. He focused on the constraints, uh, and so maybe the two of us differed there. But, uh, you know, just for example, I'd written, uh, you know, th so then I had been researching the tribunal and writing about the tribunal, uh, and I was just finishing uh, the first of two books on the tribunal. Uh, that book was called Manor Monster. That's the one I referred to in the opening reading. Uh, the other book was called The Justice Facade, Trials of Transition in Cambodia. Uh, and part of that focus is how, for example, when a witness, uh, you know, gets up to tell their story, their testimony is, uh, you know, I refer to it as clipped and pruned. So they have this meaning, you know, this testimony that's meaningful to them. Of course, it's already being truncated uh, because it has to be given in a particular temporal uh, frame. Uh, so it has to be, you know, 40 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it is, 10 minutes. Um, and so it's already being compressed. But then by the time you get to the verdict, fragments of what they talked about ended up being sort of these remnants uh, and represented in the uh, verdict. And so, you know, and it's perfectly understandable why, right? The court has to come to a determination. They have to generate uh, legal facts. To, you know, they have to test the evidence in court, generate the facts, uh, and then spin out, uh, you know, their narrative, uh, their truth of what happened. And to do that, they want to link fragments of testimony uh, to what sometimes is called, uh, for example, an issues tree, uh, where you have elements of criminality. And so, uh, you know, just one quick example, I talked about this in the justice facade, there was a civil party booming. Uh, and at one point, he talked about how uh, he was imprisoned at S21, uh, the Central Torture and Interrogation Center of the Khmer Rouge. And he talked about how he, you know, he'd look up and he'd see the uh, lizards crawling on the wall and he, he hoped they'd drop down so he could eat the, eat the lizard. So that was taken in, in the verdict and it ended up being, you know, as evidence buried way down of crimes against humanity. And that's, you know, within that frame, that's understandable, but to him it had a very different sort of set of meanings and the meaning uh, in particular to him, uh, you know, he he was Buddhist and he often thought about these issues through a Buddhist frame. And so he actually shortly after talking about the lizard uh, talked about karma uh, and how he had ended up in this place. Uh, and he wanted to perform a ceremony for his wife, a Buddhist ceremony. And it's just a small, small example uh, of all of this quote unquote clipping and pruning that takes place. So, you know, I knew I'd be going into a politicized atmosphere um, I knew the court uh, had these different issues in terms of the compression of history, uh, obfuscating uh, some of the history that had taken place. Uh, I knew that I'd be entering into this field. I knew that what I said uh, would be, in a sense, clipped and pruned, even as they, uh, you know, you can download and listen to testimony uh, online. So all of my testimony is sitting there online. But in the sort of historical truth, piece of truth that comes out of it, the verdict, the judgment, um, you know, my, again, my testimony was clipped and pruned and showed up in a few different places. Uh, so those, I guess I just went through a long list of the cons and I talk about this in the book. Um, but you know, it was something I had to think deeply about, you know, Rousseau refused to testify. I decided I would testify in the end. Uh, and so I differed with him in certain ways. 
related to that, Alex, can you um, just talk a little bit about legal minimalist versus legal maximalist and how that was also a concern of how sort of the court would approach um, you know, your testimony and what, what it would contribute to in terms of justice? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of this gets laid out in the introduction to the book. Um, and that's a uh, term I adapted from the scholar uh, Richard Wilson, who's wrote about expert witness testimony. Um, but the basic idea is, uh, you know, legal minimalist. Hannah Arendt, for example, was a legal minimalist. She famously said, and I don't remember the exact quote, but basically, uh, you know, a court should be about the law and rendering a verdict. Um, that's not a quote again. Uh, she has famously said in a different way that uh, I can't remember her exact phrasing, but it's been taken up uh, by many people uh, to say, you know, a court's not about, uh, you know, giving witnesses uh, a chance to speak as we had in the Eichmann trial uh, more broadly. And she was reacting to that. Uh, she said this at the beginning of Eichmann in Jerusalem, uh, you know, where suddenly witnesses were there expounding and the, and the uh, Israeli government was, uh, was talking about the trial and linking it into their historical narrative. Uh, and she said, no, you know, it's about law, right? It's about producing a verdict, making a judgment, an assessment of criminality. Uh, and so very, you know, very much articulates, uh, you know, this is the legal minimalist position, uh, and it sticks very closely to legal epistemology uh, as generating truth in a particular sort of way. More maximalist people, you know, this term refers more broadly uh, to, for example, the transitional justice community. Uh, and sort of the opposite extreme is, well, law has a very important role in terms of accountability, uh, but it also has a number of other important uh, roles that it plays uh, when, it, when these trials take place. Uh, for example, uh, illustrating the return of the rule of law. Uh, more broadly, providing, seeking to uh, determine the truth. And again, as I said before, the verdict has a particular sort of truth, but it's often used in the transitional justice community as, you know, sort of all truth will, will be known, uh, much of what was hidden, uh, you know, in the past. So you have these truth claims, they're claims made about uh, bringing reconciliation to a country, which is, you know, a, a transitional justice mechanism cannot do that. It can contribute to reconciliation, but it certainly isn't able to have a sort of curative, uh, you know, ability. Uh, likewise, it can't cure trauma. Sometimes uh, courts are portrayed in that way. Uh, anyways, but it's linked by legal maximalist uh, into all sorts of things, education, memorialization, peace, reconciliation, uh, return of rule of law, accountability, as I said before. Um, and you know, that, that would really upset Hannah Arendt if she were around to uh, read about the transitional justice uh, community and their claims. Um, you know, so I, I fall, uh, you know, in the middle. Uh, and But I'm a, you know, I think a, a tribunal has a role that goes beyond what's taking place uh, in the court. It would be absurd almost to say that, you know, that's its only function. It certainly should do law and it should do it well. Uh, but it has the ability to impact societies and other sorts of ways as well. Um, but, you know, sort of flipping around to the pros, um, you know, I, as an anthropologist, as a genocide scholar, uh, you know, I have a book called uh, Why Did They Kill Cambodia in the Shadow of Genocide? And that's what much of my testimony centered on. It was uh, research that I can, based on research I conducted as a graduate student and a few years after that. Um, 
but you know, I, I explain, I try and explain why the genocide took place and what motivated people to kill. That's the title of the book. Why do they kill? And the title is actually taken from the question that Cambodians still ask today, which is why did Khmer kill Khmer uh, is the way they often phrase it. And so I had the opportunity as not a lawyer to go into the courtroom and as best as I could within those constraints, that field, that legal field in which I was enmeshed uh, to try and offer uh, an academic explanation. And I had no idea about the extent to which I would be able to do that. Um, but I think in the end, you know, I, I think I uh, was, I think I was you know, overall happy with uh, the way it turned out. I did get uh, like a quick surprise as a genocide scholar. I was ready uh, to give a, a little mini genocide studies lecture to the court about the definition of genocide, talk about Lemkin. I, I had it was all prepared uh, and I got going and I sort of began to open it up. And the, suddenly I was told that, you know, as often happens, oh, stop, please, you know, by the president, the defense is standing. Uh, the defense lawyer for new and just said, look, oh, very quickly, we've gotten moved away from like the legal frames that govern this court. That's not exactly what he said, but something to that effect. Um, here we are with a very different notion of genocide. That's not a legal definition of genocide. And it's irrelevant to this court where the word we should be very cautious about the way genocide is used. Uh, and so, you know, so I would... Being in there, you also, even though I've watched stuff like this happen all the time, it's different when you're enmeshed with it. And you have this ongoing back and forth, uh, sort of seeing what's said, were there spaces to move uh, within that. Um, but my eye was kept directly on explanation. Um, and the last sort of pro I should mention is, you know, as an anthropologist, uh, you know, I guess Henry Rousseau, you know, this maybe was different as an anthropologist. You know, I'd interviewed, I've interviewed hundreds, thousands, maybe, I, I don't know how many uh, perpetrators and victims, uh, but especially for the victims, uh, you know, I felt an obligation to testify, even if it meant that uh, I was going to be in rough waters uh, and I was going to have a target on my back. I felt like I ha also had a responsibility to them um, to go ahead and do it. And, uh, you know, for those reasons, that's why I decided to testify. Um, but uh, it's a grueling, grueling process. It was three and a half days long. Uh, and boy, I can't tell you the relief uh, I felt and the exhaustion at the end of those three and a half days. I, I can't imagine. Uh, and just the, uh, you know, the scene that um, maybe some of our, our listeners have seen on YouTube uh, with the confrontation uh, with Nuangia, um, which uh, you know, we'll, I'm sure maybe get back to, um, because, because you mentioned, uh, you know, your, you know, your initial offering to provide a little bit of background on, on genocide and get into, uh, Lemkin and so on, you know, the ECC had jurisdiction over crimes against humanity and war crimes as well as genocide. So how central to the court's proceedings was the, uh, the charge of genocide, um, would it have been a very different, you know, tribunal had genocide not been among the charges? Certainly. I mean, you know, uh, in the end, in this hierarchy uh, that has certainly a number of problems with it, genocide stands at the top of the sort of pyramid of uh, atrocity crimes. Uh, many people say that certainly shouldn't be the case. 
many people, including you, uh, have noted that the concept of genocide is thoroughly political, uh, also ends up erasing certain sorts of things. Uh, so that, uh, and, you know, through the sort of hierarchy diminishes things sort of implicitly uh, of the other atrocity crimes. Uh, so if there's a crimes against humanity, and that sounds awful, crimes against humanity, right? But if it's not genocide, somehow it comes to have this somewhat lesser valence. And, you know, this is also, uh, you know, as we're speaking with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, this very quickly became an issue uh, and, uh, and discourses about talking about whether Russia was committing genocide. And somehow, if it wasn't, that implied that somehow lesser things, just, just crimes against humanity and more crimes are taking place. So, you know, we have this hierarchy. But because we have this hierarchy, you know, there's this way in which, and it links as well into the sort of uh, sacral and the Holocaust uh, as this event that often genocide reverberates with, even as, you know, we have other issues like many other issues like the history of colonialism uh, that are pushed aside. That That's sort of going into a completely different uh, discussion. So I'm, I'm not going to go there now. And you, I'm sure you've talked about it many times Uh on on this uh, program, um, but because it holds this this place for everyone, it's it's critical, um, and so that's even for the trial chamber with the judges. Everyone is aware of the genocide charge, and it's certainly true for the government of Cambodia. They want to get a gen, you know, they want the court to get a genocide conviction. Um, you know, it 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 comes. There's a extra gravitas, sacral element, um, you know, that comes with having something labeled uh, a genocide uh, and lots of problems with that, but that's just the way it is. Uh, so yes, there were crimes against humanity. Uh, there were war crimes um, and there were other crimes in, in Cambodian law, but genocide was the one that everybody had their eye on uh, in this case, you know, as well as not solely people were concerned with a host of crimes, but the genocide charge was something that was much talked about uh, and everybody was aware about it. Thanks, Alex. And taking that, if we go back to you know the beginning of your research on Cambodia, when you started, did you already have a conclusion that genocide had been committed or is this something through your research you came to a realization of? Yeah, you know, that's a uh, interesting question. I'm sort of thinking about the progression. So I didn't go to graduate school to be a genocide uh, scholar. You know, I went there to be, you know, an anthropologist. Uh, I went there sort of looking to study, to work in a place uh, with an interesting history uh, that was Buddhist, you know, sort of whittled down Tibet and Cambodia, uh, geopolitics, things shifted. Suddenly it was possible to go to Cambodia. Um, so I went there by this time, certainly genocide, you know, the Cambodian case was already being called a genocide. And I, I think it's, you know, I talked about it. I would refer to it, I'm sure as genocide, uh, sort of in passing, I did my research and then it was only after I did my research that I began to and I began to think through the issues that I began to find out that there was the field of genocide studies and looking into Holocaust uh, studies. And so I came sort of late to the game to the study uh, of genocide. 
And the reason I mentioned this is I had, you know, sort of a, it was sort of taken for granted, more of a colloquial understanding, you know, in graduate school, I never read Lemkin. I read, well, at the beginning of graduate school, I read Lemkin much later after I was writing my dissertation. Um, anyway, so I, and then I started going to meetings of different genocide associations and I became aware of all the different nuances to the definitions, uh, but I, you know, in the end, I think it's pretty clear no matter how you define genocide, that genocide took place in Cambodia. There are some people who don't agree, but I, uh, anyways, I, I think it's a pretty, a fairly easy case to make. Ultimately, uh, even using the restricted UN definition, which was uh, used in this court, um, you know, because they were looking at ethnic Vietnamese uh and Muslim Joms as the protected groups under the convention. And that's a, that's a pretty clear case. But more broadly, as an anthropologist, my own view is that the targeting of any group, not just a set of protected groups uh, who are protected, and it's great they are protected, but a specific number of groups are protected, uh, the four in this case, uh, due to a process of negotiation uh, at the UN, uh, one that originally had a much more capacious uh, understanding of group identity and was very restrict, much more restricted at the end. Uh, you know, I, I lean much more to the uh, 1946 resolution, which basically said, you know, any group included economic groups, political groups, uh, and certainly, and in this case, based on class categories, a group of people were targeted uh, for elimination and killed, uh, in mass. Uh, so you had, you know, genocide against, uh, class-based groups, uh, based on this calculus of political consciousness. Uh, and actually this political consciousness then had this weird twist where people who were former Khmer Rouge were then linked into being counter-revolutionaries and traitors and sort of thrown into this other, this targeted community, uh, you know, that's maybe a, a discussion for another one of the books I've written. Uh, so, uh, you know, I won't go into it, but the point is, yeah, you know, it seems pretty obvious to me. It's a genocide by using the definitions we have, even as, as a scholar, you know, the definition of genocide is linked to a certain epistemology and makes certain truth claims. Uh, you know, so I, I'm aware as well about how, about the social construction uh, of these things and also that they're contested. Um, so ultimately, if, if someone else uh, says, as scholars I respect have said, they don't really think it's a genocide. They think it resembles, uh, you know, some do. I won't name the scholars. Uh, you know, it more closely resembles, uh, you know, the Soviet Union, um, for example, or Maoist China. And then they think that's sort of a communist political killing that's somehow different than genocide. But of course, genocide studies now has... Finally, you know, there took a while, recognized that what took place in China uh, and in the Soviet Union uh, constituted uh, genocide as well. Uh, but, you know, it's a discussion. Uh, and as long as there isn't sort of malicious denialism uh, that's not predicated on uh, any sort of reasonable epistemology, right, that's sort of the classic denial that we talk about. If people have different views, I think those views should be heard and they should be debated. Um, you know, uh, but ultimately it goes back to this problem that we began the question, your question raised at the beginning, which is it, it shouldn't matter if people suffer horrendous, awful crimes 
you know, however we label them, those crimes are, uh, you know, an outrageous assault on their human dignity. Uh, and they should be attended to, you know, carpet bombing, uh, is a horrific crime. The bombing that took place, uh, in World War II, the fire bombings were horrific. The dropping, uh, you know, of atomic bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki were, is horrific. Those are all crimes that should be attended to, uh, and they shouldn't be sort of dismissed or thought of as lesser because they don't accord with this, with quote unquote, the definition of genocide. Yes. And that too could lead to a whole sort of separate, but interconnect, interconnecting conversation, uh, about, you know, there's Dirk's, uh, Dirk Moses' permanent security, uh, Scott Strauss's mass categorical violence. There's been way, there's mass atrocity crimes. There's been ways that we've tried to sort of situate these other massive acts of violence within sort of the purview of, of genocide studies. And, and I do think we've made some, some progress there. And, uh, and I think we'll continue to make progress there. So, um, but Alex, you you referred to some of your your previous work, and uh, if I have it correctly, you've written four books now on Cambodia, uh, including "Why Did They Kill?" Cambodia in the Shadow of Genocide, uh, "The Justice Facade: Trials of Transition in Cambodia," "Man or Monster: The Trial of a Khmer Rouge Torturer," and of course, "Anthropological Witness." Uh, could you talk uh, a little bit about how you've evolved through this research, and and certainly please? Um, incorporate it can happen here as part of you know that 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 trajectory as well. Yeah, and that uh, you know I, I should say uh, it can happen here. White power and the rising threat of genocide to sort of take your last uh, you know that last comment uh, first. Anthropological witness and it can happen here were originally the same project. It was a combined project. Um, my testimony. I got my summons in 2015, just as candidate Trump uh, was ramping up. Uh, I testified in 2016, and the first chapter, uh, as I talked about, as we talked about, uh, you know, with it can happen here in the earlier uh, show, um, you know, begins with Trump's rally in 2016, where he's telling the parable of the snake at the same time I'm giving testimony uh, at the tribunal. And so... Originally, the my testimony was directly interwoven uh, with sort of what was going on in the U.S. and Trump and sort of taking up this issue of lessons of the past. Um, at a certain point, uh, you know, it became unwieldy. Uh, and I realized that, you know, there were two books here needed to be split apart. But there are a lot of remnants of Cambodia, uh, you know, and they're actually points of each narrative that overlap and are, you know, sort of like new and Jesus death that appear in both of the books. So the books are definitely companion volumes, but me, you know, they're sort of a, I don't want to say identical twins, but they're, you know, they're very close and they're very interwoven. Uh, and so in a certain way, that book almost, you know, anthropological witness and it can happen here, pair up, uh, in their own way, as opposed to those other books. But if we sort of look back to the different books um, that I've written on the uh, Cambodian genocide, and I might mention I have a, a book uh, co-authored with the Argentinian scholar, or the scholar and folks in Argentina, Tony Robbins. Uh, it's coming out uh, in January with Stanford on perpetrators. And each of us considers our knowledge about uh 
perpetrators to write about, you know, so there's one section of the book on interviewing, there's another one on dreams, it sort of takes up the sort of psychological impact uh, and emotionality of doing perpetrator research. The last part takes up the issue uh, of how to write about perpetrators. Um, so there's actually another book that's uh, sort of linked in. That one did not begin with, uh, you know, it's very separate from anthropological witness and it can happen here. Um, but if we go back, you know, as opposed to thinking of, oh, you know, there are four books on Cambodia, each book takes up a different set of conceptual issues. It's written in a different moment in time. Uh, and so, you know, even as they're quote unquote about Cambodia, you know, each of them's distinct and different. Um, so why did they kill? As I mentioned before, was based on my dissertation research where I took up this question, you know, why, why did this genocide take place? What motivated perpetrators to kill other people? Um, you know, and so that's a, you know, very specific goals also, uh, illustrated by the title of the book. Then, you know, I actually thought I was probably done writing about Cambodia. And then we had the tribunal after all oh, years and years, political wrangling. Well, at first it seemed impossible because, uh, you know, the Khmer Rouge were still fighting as a guerrilla force. Finally, in the late 1990s, uh, the Khmer Rouge movement imploded. People began to talk about the possibility of having a tribunal. 2003, there's finally an agreement uh, where we have this uh, hybrid tribunal with all its problems still finally not letting uh, these perpetrators, uh, you know, die uh, untried. Some of them had, Paul Pot had, but trying to find some degree of accountability. Uh, and that's really important. So whatever the critics say, as long as there's good law, I think, uh, you know, good enough law, and there certainly was in this case, and, you know, people who commit horrific atrocity crimes are held to account. I think that's an important achievement of the court in the end. Uh, sort of going back, I was a little negative about the court earlier. I just want to stress that point as well. But it suddenly in 2003, uh, you know, there was going to be a tribunal. And so I said, wow, you know, I've done, I didn't say it quite like this, but I've done all this research. Now suddenly everything's going to shift. Uh, but more importantly, they're going to, you know, at this tribunal, they're going to bring this thing called international justice that's historically formulated uh, and used and rendered uh, in primarily Judeo-Christian context. And they're going to have a trial in a predominantly Cambodian, or excuse me, Buddhist context, uh, as well as having Muslim jams, but predominantly Buddhist. And as an anthropologist, obviously, you know, they're, they're very different sort of concepts uh, and frames that exist, include, and they're very different understandings of law. Um, and that was an interesting question to me. And so I, you know, that became the project I was going to look at. So I was no longer sort of looking at the origins of genocide. I was looking to try and understand this sort of pro project of transitional justice, international justice uh, in Cambodia and what it would mean. So it's, you know, it's a very different set of issues, even as it's obviously linked because it was a tribunal about uh, what had happened in the past. Uh, so as I got going, the first trial held in 2009 uh, was of this, uh, the former head of S21, the Central Interrogation uh, and Torture Center uh, that, uh, you know, 
the numbers, we're not sure, maybe 20,000, I think officially they have a, the court came up with a figure of about 11 or 12,000. It changed through time. Uh, but certainly that's only what they can prove and many more people passed through the gate. So a huge number of people uh, were killed at this prison. Uh, and it, that uh, prison, S21, uh, the grounds of it were turned into the Tool Sling Museum of uh, Genocide Crimes. Uh, genocidal Crimes, now it's the Tool Sling Genocide Museum. Everybody, tourists who go to Cambodia, most of them almost always go there. Um, it became linked into the politicization, uh, a site where the government tried to provide evidence um, of Khmer Rouge uh, culpability. Um, and as a small aside to clarify something earlier, another strand of the politicization of the court, uh, many people believe that uh, the Cambodian government wanted uh, wants wanted a very restricted number of cases uh, because members of that government, including the prime minister, are themselves former Khmer Rouge. So they basically had a narrative that emerged um, afterwards where they said it was actually a faction of the Khmer Rouge that were responsible, the Pol Pot, Kusumpon, uh, Ing Sari. Actually, oddly, they they didn't say Nguyen Gia so much, which is a sort of different story, but that that faction was primarily responsible and uh, subverted this glorious revolution uh, because the regime that replaced them was socialist and then eventually now, uh, effectively, they're still in power. So that's a little bit of politics in the background uh, and the defense, as I said before, that crocodile argument was always happy to raise that point. Um, so Doik, uh, the head of this, uh, you know, of S21 that became sort of, we might call it the tool slang genocide museum. Symbolically, it was like Cambodia's Auschwitz, we might say. Um, and he was notorious. So he was the first one to go on trial. And I, so I'm like, I'm here, I'm starting studying this issue of global justice. And I got swept up by the case. Uh, and I said, once again, I started writing my book and I said, uh Oh, I have two books here. And so I split off, you know, as I was writing, I think I had like 250,000 words, 300,000 words, I don't know, a lot, a lot of words. And then I parsed out and wrote a book just about his trial. Um, and that one, you know, it's kind of interesting. It echoes with epistemology argument. Uh, ultimately looked at return to the banality of evil idea from Hannah Arendt uh, and talked about uh, articulation, redaction, the redacting, the redactic, foregrounding, backgrounding, and how, for example, uh, you had in this very odd way, the Khmer Rouge would go through uh, confessions and have people write and rewrite them to formulate uh, a, uh, you know, the confession and a treasonous biography, for example. The same sort of process, and this, uh, you know, links back to what I said about clipping and pruning, uh, uh, you know, even though I'm sort of reconnecting it here, I hadn't quite formulated it in this way before the connection between these two books. Um, the effectively, you know, when they had a psychological evaluation of Doig, you had the same thing go on where there was a particular rendering of him as a psychological subject in terms of deviance or non-deviance uh, that was rendered. In the same way at the court, you had through juridical procedure a rendering of Doik uh, in terms of criminality, guilty, innocent. Uh, and in all of these different cases, you had this triangulation. I actually used uh, the Khmer Rouge ideological uh, rubric where they talked about consciousness, organization, 
and politics. And I show how that operated to produce, like to generate victims, uh, you know, at tool slang through confessions and interrogation, but then how it works through the structures of law and through the structures of psychology. In other words, these structures are everywhere. Uh, and it's something that's omnipresent and we're constantly na- navigating reality uh, where we're redacting, simplifying, articulating in certain ways. But by for- doing these foregrounding, this foregrounding, we're erasing. And then it loops around to Hannah Arendt and the banality of evil, uh, t- saying that it's, you know, it's thoughtlessness, you know, in terms of Eichmann, but it's also in this weird way, thoughtfulness, right? In the sense that it's the way human beings think where we reduce, we articulate, but we redact. Um, and, you know, ultimately I could sort of swing this around to uh, a figure, you know, Adorno and his idea of reification. Uh, education after Auschwitz that's been very that was very influential for anthropological witness and it can happen here uh, and so you know the sort of resonance and I really am sort of thinking through these connections through your question right now I hadn't quite thought them through so thank you for that, that great great question I'm seeing connections between the projects in ways I hadn't quite uh, you know I, I sort of knew they were there but I haven't articulated them like this so this is uh, interesting um, anyway so that book came out then. I finished, that's the book I referred to when I was testifying in 2016. Then I finished that, the sort of, that had its companion volume, The Justice Facade, which was very much about that original project. How do people on the ground in Cambodia understand transitional justice in this court? And what often, uh, you know, happens is people project We all do. That's how we understand the world. We have certain frames and we, those frames mediate our understanding of what's going on. But for many people, juridical personnel, understandably, when they went to Cambodia, they didn't understand local Buddhist concepts. So they, many of them were interested uh, in Buddhism and wanted to, uh, and were quite open and welcoming and understanding its importance but they didn't really understand what was going on in terms of the way those Buddhist frames mediated understandings uh, of what was called global justice at the time and how, uh, for example, uh, if we go back to Bumang, who I mentioned at the beginning, uh, and I have a chapter on Bumang, uh, when he went to testify, uh, he went in the court with a photograph of his wife. Both of them were sent to S21. He was separated from her. They never saw each other again. And he wanted to ask Doik, and this is a civil law court, civil parties are uh, parties to the proceedings, Uh, civil parties give testimony, Um, you know, again, the different civil and common law, probably don't need to get into that, it's a different, uh, it's a a big issue, but the bottom line is, the distinction is, you know, common law, US, uh, England versus continental tradition that includes France, which influenced and Germany, but France, which influences the Cambodian uh, juridical system. Uh, you have the court, the trial chamber having a central role versus while well, the judge is important, the prosecution having a more a very central role in common law. Uh, I could go on forever, but I'm not going to. But you had this affordance in, uh, in civil law. Uh, to let people like Bumain speak. So he wanted to ask this question to Doik. Uh, and he did ask the question. Doik wasn't all that helpful. Uh, but what Bumain wanted, he was... So in Cambodia, right, where we have reincarnation, 
right? Karma, uh, you know, your past deeds influence the present. Uh, to be reborn, ideally, you don't want to get suspended, but sometimes uh, the spirits of the dead become stuck. They afflict the living. And Bu Meng, uh, his wife, haunted him uh, in his dreams. Uh, and so in Cambodia, you think of Buddhist equanimity as, a, as an important concept, this notion of balance. And so if your relations to the spirits of the dead, you're afflicted, that means that you're not at ease. So if you say to someone, you know, how are you doing? You say, I'm not doing well. It means I, you say literally I'm not at ease, right? So it's all about balance, equanimity uh, through these local idioms. Uh, for many of the civil parties, right, what's important to them is restoring this balance to getting equanimity. And they do that in part by having by participating in the trial, but then having Buddhist rites where, for example, they transmit justice to the souls of the dead. So there are all these other sets of understandings that are pushed off to the side, not central uh, uh, to the quote unquote legal proceedings uh, that nobody really talks about very often that I wanted to write about. And so uh, that was that second book um, linked to Manor Monster that came out. And then I thought I was done again. <laughs> thought I was done on other projects. And I, you know, I was doing other sorts of projects and uh you know, there it was, 2015, I get the summons. And at the same time, uh, Donald Trump decides to run for president. And here we are talking a couple, two days, I think it is, after he announced he's going to run again for uh, president. We'll see how it goes. Um, but uh, yeah, so then I was going to write at first a book about LinkedIn to Donald Trump and U.S. history. Uh but then I was going to link it into, I've already gone over it. I spoke earlier, um, my experience testifying. And then we got these two books uh, and here we are. So that's a long answer, but it's a, you know, and I appreciate your question because it helped me think through some of these connections. Um, yeah. So I can see th these, their reverberations, I think, and what all of us write, but each writing project has its own, set of goals and sort of focus. And so all the projects are very distinct. Um, and I maybe I should just men, mention one point you asked me about earlier, um, and I don't think I ever sort of fully got into it, which is about uh, the writing style. Um, I think maybe in your introductory comments, you mentioned that. Um, but I also have made, uh, you know, a very, I'm, I'm sort of, I don't know, maybe it's too much to say I'm dissatisfied, but there's a problem for me, and I'm speaking about myself. I have many colleagues I respect uh, who write in different sorts of ways. Um, but I was trained, you know, I like to say sometimes I was trained to be a bad writer. And by that, yeah, by that, I mean, basically, I was trained. No one talked to me about writing, really. My advisor did, you know, talk generally. He liked creative writing. Brad Shore, he talked about it some. But nobody ever sort of went in and you know said, what is good academic writing? What is trade writing? You just sort of read stuff and you imitated other people. And so I imitated the jargony, bad writing uh, of other people. Um, actually, I think I still, hopefully, you know, like Why Did They Kill uh, has been, you know, it's used in classrooms, so I think it's done okay. But I still, you know, as we, as many of us do, uh, was deploying uh, language that could have been, uh, it could have been used more clearly. 
maybe uh, in terms of uh, sort of the shift of writing over time, uh, at a certain point in the mid, like 20, you know, 2015, 2014, 2013, I decided to try and take up literary conventions, creative nonfiction techniques and integrate them uh, into what I was doing. Uh, and so, you know, this progression uh, began actually with Manor Monster, but then even as uh, Justice Facade is sort of written with more of that academic language, hopefully there are parts of it that bring in narratives with things, but then there's really the step from Manor Monster to it can happen here in Anthropological Witness and Anthropological Witness, you know, both it and it can happen here are written with an eye to a broader market potentially, but especially uh, use uh, student use. And, you know, we'll see what happens, but anthropological witness is very short, 150 pages, uh, something like that. Uh, and it takes up, yeah, and it's supposed to take up methodological issues, uh, sort of introduction to anthropology and genocide. Uh, you know, so these sort of issues that hopefully would be able to be used uh, in a courtroom. And, you know, I'll just say one one last thing on this point, since you uh, your question, you know, it's something I've thought a lot about. It's very important to me. You know, I, I read books on creative writing. And so, you know, I really I, I've taken a dive into it in different sorts of ways. Um, but when I wrote for uh, one publication, I won't name it, um, that was for a broader audience, uh, the editor uh, in this uh, journal said, when you speak, you should speak as if you were speaking to a really smart eighth grader. And that, and that's not meant to be a diminutive thing. There are a lot of really smart eighth graders. I sometimes think about it. I should try and speak as if I'm talking to one of my relatives uh, who you know doesn't have a graduate degree, doesn't know anything about anthropology or genocide. The way I talk about things should be such that even if I may have to explain some stuff a little bit, they should be able to understand and have a conversation and be in dialogue uh, with my project. So now I always think about that, um, you know, and having, there's a place for theory, though I'm one to think, I certainly think that theory can be expressed more clearly than it often is. And I think it's sometimes it's not because the people talking about it, you know, maybe aren't able to express it clearly. But, uh, you know, I always, to me, the best writers are people who write clearly, tell stories, and can mobilize theory and make important arguments in a way that brought a broader public, a student audience, uh, more than the small little circuit of uh, academic scholars with whom they normally interact, can understand it. Uh, and even if they don't end up reaching all those people, they've made the effort and it sort of circles back to this idea of what uh, being an engaged or a public scholar to me is all about. It's taking this knowledge that we've gained over time through research, teaching, and conveying it in a way that is able to be communicated to, uh, you know, outside the walls uh, of academia. And it's really hard to do. It takes a lot of effort. Um, but I've tried to do that. I actually just uh, last week received the uh, Anthropology and the Media Award uh, from the American Anthropological. Yeah, thanks. And I don't, I would never mention it normally, but it was nice to have recognition, you know, of trying to write in this different sort of way. Um, and so coincidentally, that just uh, happened. But, 
you know, I think there, everyone has to make their own decisions. But for me, you know, I, I feel as well as, you know, testifying the reasons I decided to testify, but also the reasons for trying to write in this different sort of way. Uh, you know, there, I feel an obligation to do that. I feel a responsibility uh, as a scholar. Uh, but I understand people make different choices. Uh, and I respect that even as I, I choose, you know, again, in contrast to Henry Rousseau, um, I, I chose what perhaps sometimes is a little bit more of a perilous path of stepping into the public domain uh, where you're more exposed and at risk. Thanks, Alex. And, and with, with all that in mind, um, whether with this, uh, whether within it can happen here or uh, in your future work, um, did you ever consider the possibility of uh, publishing in a more commercial press for broader um, you know, market reach, uh, or, um, is it still better for you to, to work with a university press on these projects? Yeah. You know, I, I love, you know, especially small, uh, university presses. Um, so for, you know, my last book, anyway, so I published with bigger ones, um, and I published with smaller ones that are very high quality. And I, you know, I like the ones where you can engage with an editor. Um, I have thought about that and it can happen here. I wanted to get, it can happen here out into the world. Um, because we, you know, I was writing it, uh, during the Trump presidency with all of the, and the rise of white power extremism. And I felt a real pressure to get it out. Um, and so I probably, if I'd waited, I I'm I think I could have gotten a trade press to do it, but it would have taken a while for the book to come out. It wouldn't have gone through peer review. Um, so that in particular is the book that would have been very well suited, I think, for a trade publisher. Though I'm very pleased by uh, by NYU Press, who I published it with, uh, which did a great job promoting it. Uh, they actually had a publicist. Uh, I did a lot of actually podcasts, inter- radio interviews, all sorts of different things. Uh, they kept the price down, which is what a trade press does. They actually just brought it out uh, in paperback with a discount. Uh, so the paperback was like $20, but with their discounts and free shipping, it's just $14. Uh, and you almost never get that with academic presses. You know? so, that, so there are you know, presses and you know, anthropological witness I think it's 25 bucks uh, in paper, which is uh, is pretty good for an academic book uh, these days. Uh, so, you know, in the future going forward, I've got this other book coming out uh, in, the, in the early part of next year. Uh, and I'm in a replenishing moment where I'm trying to figure out the next project. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's a project that aims directly at a, uh, you know, at a trade press, but we'll see. Sounds good, Alex. Um so, you know, uh, we're getting closer to the end here, but I, I, if you don't mind, I have a few more questions that I was hoping to get to. Um, you know, you, you talked uh, about the, you know, the defensive strategy a bit. Um, moving to, to, you know, as close to present day as, um, as you know, your knowledge allows, um, what's the current state of genocide denial in Cambodia? Uh, and does it pose a potential future threat? Uh, no, I think that the quick answer is no. Uh, you know, the state of genocide denial is not, uh, is not really much of an issue. It's only an issue. Uh, it's primarily an issue in the political realm, uh, because, uh, opposition politicians, uh, Cambodia basically 
went from being an authoritarian state through the 1980s into opening up uh, and suddenly having human rights, a proliferation of civil society with UN elections uh, through the, uh, you know, into the, through the mid 1990s into the 2000s, uh, and since then has had a has had backsliding and is now called by some people an authoritarian regime. Uh, and there's certainly a degree of truth to that. Um, you know, though I'm always wary of singular uh, conceptions, but uh, certainly the public sphere has been greatly compressed, uh, and there's been a massive crackdown on opposition politicians uh, and journalists as well. Um, but opposition, when there was a little more latitude, uh, the opposition sometimes would sort of play up the politicization of the tribunal. And there also were people, there was then a claim by the government that people were trying to deny genocide. Uh, and, you know, they even passed like a genocide denial law. So the, it's within the scholarly community, there's virtually no discussion of this issue because I think, as I said before, you know, there are people I respect who view what took place through a different lens. I think they're pretty clearly wrong uh, based on almost any definition, uh, serious definition of genocide that's used uh, about their category. But that's their view. And it's not done to say this never took place, right? It's done because they think it's horrific, but it fits more in these Soviet uh, or Maoist uh, models. You know, that, so, you know, sort of the, the black book of communism motif, if you will, uh, going back to that study that was done a while back. Um, but so it's not an issue. It's an issue for, uh, for politicians. It was an issue in the court because, you know, here we are. I, you know, it's as a defendant, if you don't want to say you're guilty of genocide, that's fine. But then it becomes a question of what's the way that you're going to you know, what's the explanation you're going to give? Uh, and in court, Nguyen was basically, you know, we didn't know what was going on, you know, which is clearly untrue. There's tons of evidence saying it was obvious he knew what was going on, he and Pol Pot and other leaders, uh, saying, oh, it was all a big Vietnamese plot. And there's no doubt that the Vietnamese were trying to have uh, influence in Cambodia, but the absurdity of trying to say they were responsible for, they and their Cambodian lackeys, quote unquote, were responsible for all the killings is, is ridiculous. Uh, and, and the truth is, he knows it. Um, but he, they, Khmer Rouge have been saying this since 1979 when they were deposed. Uh, they actually accused the Vietnamese of committing a genocide in Cambodia in 1979 after they came in uh, and they continued there. So it's an ideological point. Uh, so I, I, that was really important to me was to critique that point in court and to point out the weaknesses in that argument. And I did that. Uh, so that was one thing in terms of explanation uh, that I was able, as a scholar, uh, to sort of bring out the weaknesses of the argument. Uh, that's a long, different story. I'm not going to go into it. Um, so genocide denial was in the courtroom. Khmer Rouge pushed it. Uh, it, it. It operates for the current government due to this sort of complicated uh, history of democracy and opposition. But for the scholarly community, uh, you know, we have these... Most people call it genocide. There's a smaller group that put it into the "quote unquote" black book of communism model, uh, and so it's it's not something that you know. If you looked up genocide denial in Cambodia, you probably wouldn't find very much written about it. I have looked and haven't found much. There, there you so, go. Yeah. yeah. 
But I do think that's really fascinating, uh, you know, from a sort of analytical or, uh, you know, scholarly perspective is how um, partial partial truths are, you know, exploited by by perpetrators as well as other parties to, you know, I, I think you use the term deflect in your book um, and, you know, to sort of push the, you know, the spotlight onto another actor and try and blame them uh, for what happened. And I know you talk about, you know, victim and hero narratives uh, as framed by the Khmer Rouge. Um, and, you know, there's, it is in these partial truths that obfuscation, see, I'm not, I didn't say that very well, I'm a little tired. Um, but I, I think it's in those spaces, in these sort of complex spaces in which political violence occurs, uh, you know, that perpetrators and, and like I said, others who want to misdirect can find the space to do so. Yeah. You know, and you, you reminded me as well. Um, I just might mention the book in keeping with the literary strategies is written as a chronology. Uh, so it begins in 2015. Uh, it sort of culminates with the end of my testimony, but then an interview I conducted with the uh, with one of the prosecutors afterwards and then with an epilogue that goes into uh, Nguyen death, uh, and, you know, sort of goes through and it has this narrative flow, but one of the chapters, um, is on denial, the like chapter six. So it directly takes up this issue that, uh, is absolutely, uh, critical that people often don't look at, uh, and just to make one other, uh, sort of connection and, uh, to flip, you know, to, it can happen here as well as looking at this with, uh, first candidate, then President Trump, uh, who who deployed precisely the strategy of mixing truth and lies. And it, uh, one chapter of that book deals with Charlottesville and his characterization of it. Uh, yeah, because if you say something that's a clear falsehood, nobody's going to believe you. But if you say something with just enough truth to sort of play into the realm of possibility and you say it in such a way that people might believe you, you know, then you begin to spin out the possibility of dissembling uh, and, you know, in the case of genocide, uh, too often, you know, genocide denial. Yeah. Thanks, Alex. And um, I have my final two questions, uh, one about the cover and the other I'm going to read, uh, you know, a final excerpt from the book. Um, you know, we talked about your cover uh, for It Can Happen Here. Um, I know uh, Man or Monster, um, you know, you had a role in that cover as well. Um, and also I should let our listeners know that, uh, you were also interviewed for Man or Monster uh, by Kelly McFall. So if our listeners are interested in hearing more about that book, uh, they can find that on New Books and Genocide Studies as well. Uh, but Alex, can you talk about the cover of Anthropological Witness and, um, you know, what uh, role you had in that cover? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And I have had, uh, you know, I always am involved in the process. Uh, the cover uh, that NYU did actually... I didn't have anything to do with directly. It was something where the designer came up with the concept and they did a fantastic job. Um, so I don't want to take any credit for that one. And I have to say, I figured I had that uh, ex you know, experience with NYU and I said, oh, hey, why don't I try and do the same thing? So in doing this, though, you always communicate with the designer about ideas and what the book's about. And so you're involved in that, in that process uh, of the design. Sometimes you can say, uh, as was very important to me with Manor Monster, you know, I want this specific image in there. Um, 
But with Cornell, and I should say again, another small press, I had a, a great editor uh, there as well. Um, you know, they took it and they they picked the design. Um, I maybe had a little bit less uh, latitude uh, as things were moving forward, uh, but I think they came up with an interesting cover uh, with a handprint uh, in red, uh, like a blood uh, blood stain and an eye investigation. Uh, so it does uh, sort of speak to this idea of, you know, a, a witness talking about violence in the past. Um, and uh, anyways, it's and then the type uh, that they use is interesting as well. Uh, so anyways, if, uh, hopefully some of the listeners will go out there and check it out. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, so we can close with, uh, this is actually at the end of your book. Uh, you write, quote, the public scholar in the courtroom is an active participant, albeit one among many in the courtroom in which the judges have the most powerful position in the negotiation of the expansion or contraction of this overlap. These possibilities for academic witness in the courtroom notwithstanding, public scholars must nevertheless remain cautious since they are participating in legal processes and meshed with politics, power, and silences. Indeed, politics and power are an important part of the structural backdrop that informs that action taking place within the judicial field. Alex, can you talk, you know, a little bit about, you know, the courtroom as a negotiated space and and also, you know, as a public scholar, do you have any guidance for for academics who would like to be engaged more in in this public sphere as a public scholar? Yeah, you know, that's I I think we could talk a long time about those questions. <laughs> They're great questions. Um you know, I might say so earlier, I talked about, uh, you know, my own experience and the way I thought about it as a field, you know, sort of thinking about it as this Bourdieu metaphor. Um, and I was very aware about the negotiation of latitude. Um, I was aware of Cambodian cultural uh, practices. So, for example, when I was there, um, I was very polite. Uh, I used honorifics. I swore an oath uh, to the Lord of the Iron Staff, which is the uh, animistic deity uh, on the court. And they have them in courts all over Cambodia. And that was the booth, the oath that normally only Cambodian Buddhists swore. But I wanted to respect the traditions. Uh, the, the judges took note of that. Um, I politely greeted everyone. Um, so I think there was a way in which, you know, through that, I it wasn't, I didn't do it. I said, I didn't go, oh, I want to get more latitude to speak. So I'm going to be polite in court. I wanted to honor Cambodian uh, traditions and practices. And so I did this stuff. But what I realized later is the, I think the Cambodian president of the court took notice in particular and the other judges. And I think I got more latitude to speak. And there was even one moment where, uh, you know, a defense lawyer was saying, you know, your honor, can you, can, Mr. President, can you get the, the witness to just, you know, answer more quickly? I'm short on time. Uh, and in contrast to what usually happened, uh, the president of the court said, no, we want to listen to what he has to say. And so at that moment, I suddenly found myself in a position where I could speak probably, you know, I'm guessing I'd have to go look, but, uh, you know, longer than most expert witnesses um, and sort of addressing particular questions and enable me to go into more depth that otherwise, uh, you know, my, might've been more clipped and pruned to go back to that metaphor I used before. 
you know, so that's the thing. You're not sure what's going to happen when you enter the field. There are all the different players. People bring their understandings. There's negotiation. There are power structures in the court. And one of those power structures is the president of the trial chamber who said, you know, Hinton can speak. He didn't say it like that, but he can say he can speak a little bit longer. And that was great because I wanted, I was there, you know, to sort of give explanation as best as I could. Um, in terms of your uh, other question, I mean, we have to be aware of the politics of the situations that, that we're uh, entering into in the public domain. That's absolutely essential. And I think not always, but often the less experience you have, which often correlates with the more junior you are, you have, this isn't, certainly isn't true of everyone, but you have a little bit less awareness of some of those political things. So it's good to always, whatever stage of your, your career you're in, uh, to really think hard about that. You know, in this case, I'd written about the politics of the tribunal. Uh, so it was already out there. I was fully aware of it. Um, you know, so again, you know, attend to those, the politics of the situation as you negotiate and decide on your path forward. Uh, I think people are often afraid of being sort of stained by politics. And so many academics go into a stance of predominantly of uh, sort of critique first and foremost, and often make claims, uh, you know, in anthropology to sort of be speaking uh, giving voice to the voiceless, uh, and that's fine, but there's more risk when you enter into the, into the quagmire, uh, so to speak. Uh, and that is a more dicey area. Uh, so, uh, you know, there are no promises how it's going to fare. I mean, but there are lots of great public scholars, uh, you know, public anthropologist, uh, Paul Farmer recently passed away. Boy, he did incredible work. Uh, he was nominated for a Nobel Prize. I mean, uh, you know, he's an example for everyone to aspire to. But I do recognize not everyone wants to be a public scholar. Some people prefer to stay in sort of the realm of theory uh, and not have public engagements. And it's great. We need people like that. But that's not where I want to be. I want to I want to engage with theory. I want to go to solely academic conferences, but I also want to write uh short essays in the public domain, you know, like the ones I wrote about Russia and about whether I wrote three different pieces about Russia. Uh, and I spoke actually in the media quite a bit um, as the sort of issue of genocide was taking place. Um, you know, and you've got to think through these things. But the last sort of uh, point I want to reiterate is that public engagement, public communication, being a public scholar, if that's what you uh, one aspires to, you know, is about the ability to speak and write clearly. You know, if I, I, I'm not a great storyteller, I wish I were, some people are great storytellers, but the ability to tell a story that illustrates something very complex in a way that's clear and people can engage with. And, you know, we can work on this. And I've tried to work on my storytelling ability a little bit through time. I've certainly worked hard on writing um, and everyone can do that. And I encourage, uh, you know, I encourage people to do that, even though, as I said before, you know, I respect those who chose, who choose not to go down that path. Uh, but to me, you know, it's almost, a, 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 I feel it's a responsibility. 
Thank you, Alex. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Um, I really enjoyed discussing your book and, and, and certainly enjoyed reading it as well. Uh, I know that you've, um, you've plugged uh, another, uh, you know, some new work that's coming out, but do you want to uh, remind us one more time what, what's coming out um, and so we can keep our out for it? Oh, yeah, thanks. No, it's this, uh, you know, somehow I had sort of three books that were bundled closely together. Um, you know, so it can happen here. And then uh, Anthropological Witness just came out uh, in October. Um, and then I, I believe it's January, uh, this other project I was working on, uh, Perpetrators, oh, I'm embarrassed to say I'm blanking the, the subtitle. <laughs> I think it's a field, uh, a guide to humanity's dark side, I believe is the subtitle. We changed it, which is, uh, it got changed, which is why it was a little a little uncertain, but I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed about that. Um, I just think perpetrators, <laughs> right? That's the sort of keyword. Yeah, um, that's we'll find it. <laughs> yeah, that's coming out, and that's actually in terms of writing. Uh, it really takes up the sort of experimental writing issue, uh, and we actually have pieces of creative writing that intersperse sections. Some of it, uh, you know, from earlier work, um, but it, uh, and then we have sort of dialogues that between the two of us with Tony Robbins, I said, that are interspersed within the chapters. So we each would write like a chapter on interviewing perpetrators. And then we'd have interspersed texts where we say, okay, wait a second, I want to ask you about this. And so, you know, it has, uh, I think, an interesting writing style, uh, but it's, uh, you know, in keeping. And I actually go and talk a lot about some of the things I've thought about in terms of writing uh, in that, the third section of the book on writing, as does... uh, Tony, who's a fantastic scholar and has worked uh, extensively uh, with perpetrators in Argentina. So that, that's coming out uh, in January. And then, uh, and anyways, I, taken a, I think I'm going to do probably focus some on shorter public writing, maybe do a little creative nonfiction writing, uh, even as I'm thinking through, uh, you know, the next sort of book project. Um, so we'll see. But right now, I've got my eye on the paperback coming out with It Can Happen Here, the release of Anthropological Witness, and the upcoming release of uh, Perpetrators. Great. Thanks, Alex. And I just found it here, Perpetrators Encountering Humanity's Dark Side. So oh, you got that right. No, I think I got coming it wrong. Out. Oh, did you reverse the order? I think it was. I think, it was, <laughs> I think you had the words. Yeah. No, I think it was a guide is what we originally had. And then we, we changed it to Encountering. Because people didn't want, <laughs> the press, I think, did not want to think it was a sort of methodology guide. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, I'm not sure. Well, it, I, you know, I could be wrong. I'll have to ask Tony. He'll remind me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is coming out January 17th, 2023. I, I look forward to getting my hands on it. Alex, uh, thanks again so much for your time. Uh, and, and take care till the next time. Yeah, and thanks so much for, the, for having me on and for the fantastic questions uh, and actually getting me to sort of look back at these, as I mentioned before, some of these connections uh, and ways I hadn't quite thought about. So I really appreciate that. Uh, always a pleasure to be here with you, uh, and especially since I respect your scholarship so much uh, in addition to Thank the you, many Alex. things you do. Yeah. Thank you. It was my pleasure as well. Take care. Okay. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.